If you have a, a smartphone with you or a tablet device and you have access to the Bible on your phone or tablet device, we're going to be in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 24. So normally, during the sermon time here at Emmaus on a, on a Sunday morning, we would be in a series of messages going through a particular book of the Bible or a section of the book of the Bible. But for the past few weeks during the month of May, we've been playing off the month of May and the name of our church, Emmaus, and looking at passages that are foundational for who we are as a church. What does it mean to be a Christian church? What does it mean to be a church here in this location, this group of people that God has called together as a church? These passages of Scripture, and if you got a bulletin as you came in, and if you turn that bulletin or that program over to the back, if you've missed one of these weeks during the month of May, you can see the weeks and the passages that we've looked at each, each time. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Matthew 28, Acts 16, Luke 24. More than that just being a random selection of passages, I hope that those will become for you a place that you can go back to. If someone says, why in the world do you go to church? Or what is that church over there really all about? And you think, I don't really know how to give a particularly good answer to that question, or you personally just need a place to go back to, take those passages and say, I want to be able to know where those are. Just keep a copy of the bulletin with you. Our bulletin stays available on our website. You can look at those. But, but don't just feel like we're randomly picking out a series of verses here. We want to say that these are a gift to you. These are foundational for us, and we want to be able to go back there. This morning, as we look at Luke chapter 24 here in a few minutes, we're not going to read the full section together before we start. We're just going to work through it a piece at a time during the sermon. But I think one of the greatest gifts we have here is the name of our church family, that we are called Emmaus. Now, if you're visiting with us, this isn't where you normally attend church, don't go home and say the pastor said that the name of our church was bad if you are part of a different church. I just mean the fact that I love the fact that this church family is called Emmaus because the story of Emmaus, the story of Luke 24, is such an incredible picture in Scripture of how Jesus works, of how God works among his people. And so I want us to be able to walk through that this morning. Before we get into that, I'd like us to pray together uh, based on some of those psalms that we sing and to prepare ourselves for this time looking at God's word. So let's pray here as we move into this time of Bible study. Father, I pray that before we look at these passages in scripture, God, that we would look at our own hearts and our own minds to think about are we devoted to you? Are we coming into this time as a religious obligation, or do we come with hearts of faith, desiring to know you more, desiring to worship you, that we would come with a desire, a curiosity even, just as the kids go off to another room sometimes to do Bible study, we love the curiosity that little kids show. God, give us that same desire to know you, to learn, to grow and God, I pray that you would use this time this morning 
to help us to understand what it means to be a church, what it means to be a group of people who call themselves Christians. And God, I pray that if there are people here who are hurting, particularly this week, who have been through a lot of hard things, a lot of ups and downs, God, I pray that you would give them freedom and peace and strength to be able to look back to you. God, that you would give them freedom as we look at scripture to engage our hearts and our minds with this. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've told you a few times, my family lived for about nine years in New Orleans, and people have different uh, thoughts and opinions about New Orleans, but we grew to love New Orleans. That place means a lot to us to this, to this very day. One of the perks of living in New Orleans is that oftentimes you would see famous people. Uh, as you would be down around Jackson Square, you'd be downtown somewhere walking around, you would see famous people. Uh, I was at an event one time and I turned around and there was Peyton Manning. Now Peyton Manning, you can tell on TV, is a big guy, quarterback who recently retired, uh, most recently from the Denver Broncos. Peyton Manning is standing there. I was in awe. I mean, I'm looking up at this guy, huge guy, really nice, had a good time meeting him. Another time, we were down in the French Quarter area, and it was right before the Super Bowl was played in New Orleans, and we hear everybody yelling and kind of moving toward a particular direction, and we look over, and there's Sharon Osbourne. Now, let me tell you something about me meeting Sharon Osbourne or seeing her just a few, few feet away. Number one, I would not have known that it was Sharon Osbourne had my wife not told me, hey, there's Sharon Osbourne. So that's the first thing. On my top 1,000 famous people that I would like to meet, Sharon Osbourne is about 997 on that list. So I was not particularly excited about this moment, but I looked over and I saw a famous person but if I had not had my wife's help, I would not have been able to know who that person was. Here's the interesting thing about the Bible story this morning that we're gonna look at. Two guys are walking down the road and they meet the most famous person in the history of the world, but they don't recognize him when they originally meet him. They have to go through this process and I want you to see in Luke chapter 24, what it looks like for these people to meet and recognize and then have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, the first 12 verses talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So we're at the point in the story in the Bible where Jesus has died on the cross, he is resurrected, he has come back to life and he is appearing to his followers. And so we're at a point in the story where that's happening. Verse 13 is where we're gonna start reading this morning. It says in verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Okay, there's a couple of things going on here. The first is, just to get our bearings, and because you know I love to use the laser pointer, I have an extremely simple map to show you. There's not very many cities that are shown on this particular map. It's, it's about the most simple map that you could imagine. Right here in the middle of the screen, if it's hard to see, this is Jerusalem. 
You have the Dead Sea. This body of water is the Mediterranean. If you're looking over here, west is Mediterranean. There's the famous Dead Sea. Jerusalem is right in the middle. That line, that red line that heads back to the northwest, there's a little bit of controversy about exactly where Emmaus is when we're talking about, but I want you to get a feel that you've got Jerusalem, Bethlehem there, and then Emmaus is just a touchback to, to the west-northwest at this point. It says in this particular translation, it's about seven miles away depending on exactly where we locate it. Here's what you need to get from this part of the story from the very beginning. These guys at this point, these disciples, they're moving away from Jerusalem, back toward Emmaus. They may have been staying in Emmaus because during Passover things could get very crowded and so they may have been staying in Emmaus, they may have known someone there, they may have even been from there. But the point is they're no longer in Jerusalem. They're drifting away, they're moving away from Jerusalem. The picture that Luke is giving us here is they are moving away from the place that was supposed to be their point of victory, their point of life, their point of celebration. Everything that was supposed to be good about this story was going to be there in Jerusalem, and going to Emmaus is not just a random trip. It represents that they've given up hope at this point. This, is, this was no longer going to be their answer. They are in despair. We're going to find out le- later. It just describes them as they were sad. But this is a, 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 a storytelling way of saying that they have drifted away from Jerusalem. They have drifted away from their point of hope. Down in verse 14, it says, As they were going, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They're trying to process. They're trying to say, we thought X was going to be our answer. It's not what's going to happen. We can't get our help here. We've got to go somewhere else. Oftentimes you'll find in life that when people need hope and need help the most, they end up drifting away from that person, place. They end up leaving that place. This happens so many times in pastoral ministry. A person gets to the point they most need help and life, and they say, life's just too hard, I'm too messed up, I can't go to church at a time like this, I just can't be around those people. What happens is at the point you most needed that hope, you most needed that help, you end up drifting away from it. That's what happens with these disciples right here. So you get down to verse 15. Verse 15 it says, while they were, walk- while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This is good news. This is the same thing we saw in Matthew 28. When we have doubts, when we have questions, when everything's falling apart for us, that is the time that Jesus is most likely to show up. We don't have to get everything together. We don't have to have every question answered. We don't have to be this perfect religious person. Jesus most often shows up at these times that things are falling apart for us. And that exact thing happens again here in Luke chapter 24. So Jesus shows up, and then you get verse 16. And verse 16 is a head scratcher. It says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, so what's happening here? I didn't recognize Sharon Osbourne in New Orleans because frankly, I could care less about Sharon Osbourne. I know that's harsh, but just to make the point, I wasn't out looking for Sharon Osbourne. That that didn't mean anything to me. These disciples, it seems, 
have some knowledge of Jesus. We don't know how close they were to Jesus during uh, his life and his ministry, but they seem to have hoped to meet Jesus in Jerusalem, hoped that he was going to be the answer. But it says here they were kept from recognizing him. Why? Why could they not recognize him? It could have simply been that after his resurrection, he looked different in some way. I don't have any way I can describe that. I don't even know that that's exactly what this particular verse is saying. In fact, I'm gonna give you another option. It could be though, he just looked different. I think I could recognize Jesus if, if I saw him because his picture was in my grandmother's church. He had brown hair, kind of wavy, and he carried a lamb. And so if Jesus carried a lamb and he had brown wavy hair, I think I could recognize him. For some reason though, they couldn't recognize him here. What's, what's going on? There's a few different things. I'm gonna give you some Bible verses. We can't look at every one of them in detail just because of time, but I'd like to, if you'd like to make some notes or jot down something in your phone, let me give you some places you can look at and then we're gonna look at one in particular. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 is a verse where Paul is talking about as, and these particular ones aren't gonna be up on the screen. These are the ones we don't have time to look at in depth. But 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul says, we come to a point where we no longer regard Jesus according to the flesh. That means we don't, it's not that we don't care about Jesus' life, it just means we come to know Jesus in a different way. We we see more about him, we're gonna talk about that. Here's another verse you can look at. 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse four. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, in that verse, Paul talks about those who don't believe in Jesus as Lord, as Christ, that in some way their, their minds have been darkened, their eyes have been covered in such a way they're not able to see who Jesus is as the resurrected Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is a hard verse, but it's one that seems to play into the story. Another one is Mark chapter 8, especially verse 24. Mark chapter eight is a good story to tell with your kids or grandkids. It's a story in which a man could not see well, and so Jesus goes up to heal his blindness, and Jesus says, what do you see now? And he says, well, I see people, but they look like trees. He's not able to see completely, and so then Jesus completes the healing, and the man's able to see perfectly. What, what that story tells us in Mark chapter eight is Oftentimes in our life, we don't see everything clearly the first time. It's usually a process. It's usually this period of time. Many of you, the first time you read the Bible, the first time you heard about Jesus, the first time you heard the story of the gospel, it didn't happen that at that moment, immediately the light bulb went on. Now that may have been the case for you, but oftentimes it's over a period of time that we hear about Christ, that we read scripture, that we begin to understand. We don't always understand everything perfectly the first time. What that tells us is we need to be humble and patient with one another, that not everybody learns and not everybody grows in the same way. So that's, that's a possibility. Here's another verse, and this is the verse I want you to see. This is Luke chapter 18, verse 32. Luke chapter 18, verse 32 says, as Jesus was speaking to them, and and this verse right here in Luke 18 follows a passage in which Jesus predicts that he is going to die 
and then he is going to come back to life. He, he's prophesying this. He's telling this is going to happen. It says they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So earlier in the book of Luke, before we ever get to Luke chapter 24, Luke is already preparing us for the fact that the disciples, that many of them are not going to fully understand things until a later point. That in some way, they were not able to grasp what was said. And the most likely reason that's the case is because it simply wasn't the right time. That Jesus had not done everything that needed to be done and for them, for them to truly understand who he was. And so I don't want to pretend like verse 16 in chapter 24 is not a hard verse. It is a hard verse. There, there's a lot of things going on. But I want you to know that Luke has already prepared us for this. And the funny thing is, is right after this passage in chapter 18, you get the story of Jesus healing a blind beggar. The irony of that is in chapter 18, the religious people with good vision couldn't see who Jesus was. The beggar who physically was unable to see was able to see who Jesus was. You can see the irony that's being set up there, that it's not physical ability, it's not human intellect, it's not our ability that is able to make us truly understand who Jesus is and how he works in our lives. And so that's how Luke is setting up this story. So let's move on to verse 17. So if you go back to chapter 24, after it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So this is not going to be just a human power thing. This is something else is going on. Verse 17 says, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Well, obviously Luke is using something called irony in his storytelling at this point. Because Jesus knows a thing or two about what happened in Jerusalem during those days. He was the one experiencing the pain. He was the one going through this. Irony is something that storytellers were, will use because it creates a point of connection with their audience. And more than that, it creates a point of humility with their audience. We're forced to say, you know what? If I was in their shoes, I might have said the same dumb thing. They're in a position here where they're not able to truly understand what Jesus is up to. Then it says in verse 19, Jesus said to them, what things? Now, you know from the rest of the Gospels, Jesus loves to answer questions with questions. <laughs> this, is, this is his M.O. when it comes to interacting with people. This is how he does it. He answers questions with questions. He, he wants to see what they're thinking about, what things. And it says next, in verse after that, it says, They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. So don't miss, don't, don't miss their response here. Their response is accurate. It's a good portrayal of who Jesus was, what his ministry had been about, what his life had been about. But notice what their response lacks. It lacks any reference to, and he told us he was going to die and rise again. In their mind, at this point, Jesus is still a good prophet. Jesus is still a good teacher. Jesus is a good man. 
But that was really all that they were getting to at this point. So you can see what Luke is doing, how they've not yet made it to the point that he is the resurrected Lord. They're saying something that is true. They're saying something that is right, but they don't have the full picture. They're not seeing everything that's going on. It goes on after that. It says how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21 there's, there's a word in verse 21 that you need to underline or highlight. Verse 21 says, We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happen. Now there's a good, good amount of controversy going on here. But that word hoped up there, I know it's a little bit tough to see, but, but the word in blue up there, the word hoped is tied in with this idea that the people of Israel had a hope for a Messiah, for someone who would come and rescue them. Now oftentimes, and, and I want to be careful and, and being accurate as possible with this, but oftentimes the hope for the Messiah revolved around a political figure or a military figure, often with some sort of healing or teaching power. That doesn't completely encompass everything about the messianic hope but but it did get this idea that the people looked for someone they hoped for someone often in the lineage of king david who would come and rescue and redeem israel and these guys these disciples they were sure that jesus was the one they hoped with everything in them that he would be the one who would redeem israel jesus wasn't the only messiah figure to show up during this time AD 6 so the year 6 AD you have a guy named Judas who comes along and some people find him to be uh, the the messiah you get into the 50s AD and Josephus one of the historian uh, writers from this time he tells us about an Egyptian who some people saw as the messiah there were different ideas of a messiah figure coming along but Jesus seemed like the good candidate they were sure that he was going to be the Messiah, but now it's been three days, and all they got was a dead prophet and a dead teacher. So what happens next? It says in verse 22, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. Okay, here's where the story goes sideways, because you find an example of guys who failed to listen to the women and it didn't go well for them. And so there's kind of an underlying life lesson going on in this section. But uh, they were at the tomb early in the morning, verse 23. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Okay, really quickly there, that last phrase in that verse, who said that he was alive, if you take this entire story in Luke 24 and you create a diagram with it, and I'm not going to subject you to this even though I really wanted to, but uh, if you create a diagram with the story in Luke 24, the final phrase in verse 23 is the center of the structure of the story. In other words, everything about this story going on in Luke 24 about these people headed to Emmaus, the center of that story is who said he was alive. In other words, this is the piece of the story. If you don't get it, you miss the whole thing. But if you do get it, everything about Jesus makes sense. 
And this is the one part that the women had gotten and these two disciples had not gotten. They had missed that this was the very center of the story. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, and the women all together say, no kidding, we told you, it was that, who said, who found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Verse 25, Jesus responds to them. He says to them, O foolish ones, not, not degrading them, but just pointing out the idea that they've missed the obvious here. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? The thing that they had missed was that suffering and death was never meant to be the end of the Messiah. They struggled so much with the idea that a Messiah figure would suffer and die and that would be necessary, a necessary part of the plan. Jesus looked like such a good candidate and seemingly it had all been screwed up by the fact that he had died. And Jesus says it was necessary that I should suffer and then would come glory. What you find is when these disciples encounter the resurrected Jesus, what they find is hope in the midst of despair. Their whole life at this point is made up of sadness, despair, they're leaving Jerusalem, they've given up, there's nowhere to turn, and Jesus says, but you forgot to look to me. You forgot what I told you. You forgot that even the prophets had pointed to this, that the Messiah was not going to come in one swath of complete victory. It was going to be this journey that was going to include suffering, death, and then glory. Then the victory. The victory would not come in spite of death. It would come through death, leading to resurrection. Anytime you find yourself in a point of despair, in a point of giving up, in a point of sadness, the resurrected Jesus always infuses hope into that situation. When they encounter Jesus, they find hope in the midst of despair. The second thing they find, and this is falling along on the notes on the back, they find clarity in the midst of confusion. So they find hope in the midst of despair, and then Jesus always gives clarity in the midst of confusion. Look at the next verse. Verse 27 is where we're at at this point. So after Jesus responds to them, it says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Built into this verse is a thousand dollar theology church word, and it's the word, don't even worry if you can't spell it, don't worry if you forget it, but I want you to know the word in this context. Built into this verse is the word hermeneutics. It lies behind this word interpreted here. Hermeneutics is the $1,000 word that we use to describe the process of interpreting something, of interpreting any type of document, but especially uh, a scripture or, or a religious document. And it's coming to understand the meaning of something. And so what Jesus does is he takes the Hebrew scriptures, he takes the Hebrew Bible, and he says, let me interpret that. Let me give you the meaning of that. And he says that it points to himself. 
Now, this is one of those frustrating moments in the New Testament where we would be helped out greatly if Jesus could have included, or maybe the gospel writer Luke could have included, and these were the verses in the Hebrew Bible that Jesus explained to them, uh, because there's a lot of controversy about exactly which stories did Jesus tell at this point, and exactly which verses did Jesus point them to at this point. The purpose is, is that he took the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, and he said, if you look at that and you see the stories and you see the weaving of the story, it all points to me. If you would like a listing of the verses that I think that Jesus may have been referring to at this point, just send me an email. I'd be glad to shoot them back to you. Uh, I didn't have room to include them on the bulletin, and, and I didn't want to just read them out to you this morning. But if you're curious and think, I wonder what Jesus was referring to, just send me an email, give me a call, I'll get you those verses. But the purpose here is to see that all of Scripture, Jesus is giving the meaning, and he's saying it all points toward me. He does this at another place in the Gospels. In, in John you get Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders. John chapter five, verse 39, is a fascinating story, or a fascinating verse for thinking about how we read the Bible, how we read especially the Old Testament meeting up against the New Testament. Jesus says there, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is about me that they bear witness, or that they bear witness about me. Here's what we want to be very careful of at this point. Jesus is not saying that the Jewish religious leaders weren't reading their Bible. He's not even saying that they weren't studying the, their Bible. They studied their Bible relentlessly. They studied their Bible with incredible depth. It's not a lack of intellect that keeps someone from encountering the resurrected Jesus. Let's be very clear about this. This is not about we just need to be a little bit smarter or go to another class or get a little bit more information and then everything will make sense. Then we, we sometimes push this off. People say, you know, I'd be a Christian if I just got a few more questions answered. Well, when you get two questions answered, you end up with eight. And you get those eight answered and you end up with 50. It's not about getting a certain number of questions answered. Jesus says the point is not that you failed to study your Bible. The point is that you studied it and you failed to see that it pointed to the resurrected Messiah. And I am he and I am here with you saying I am the resurrection and the life. That's where the train has gone off the tracks. So go back here to verse 28. After he does this, after he does this, he says they drew near to the village to which they were going he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. Hospitality is everything in this culture. They're not going to let Jesus just go on. He knows that. Hospitality is key. Uh, Genesis chapter 18 and 19, you kind of get a picture of this hospitality happening. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 talks about sometimes people have entertained angels and haven't even realized it. Hospitality, spending time with people, is key to this culture. So it says down there, stay with us, for it's toward evening, the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Then look at verse 30. Verse 30 is when finally things start to open up for these guys. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. What's going on here? 
it seems to be pointing to two things in verse 30. The first thing that it points back to is Luke 22, as Jesus shares the Passover supper with his disciples. You get a lot of similarity in the language there, but even more than that, even more than that, I think that this verse here points back to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Luke, let me get to the right passage. Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter nine, verse 16, it says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. This language here of Jesus sharing food, sharing a meal with these people, the amazing thing about this is just after the feeding of the 5,000 here in Luke 9, the very next story is a story of when Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. So you have a feeding story, an eating story where Jesus shares food with his disciples and the very next story is and they finally recognized who he truly was. You fast forward to Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, Jesus shares a meal with these people, the very next thing and they recognize who he is. Because remember, here's the amazing thing. Back in verse 27, Jesus explained the scriptures to these people and they still didn't recognize him as the Messiah. You might give your Sunday school teacher a hard time about not doing a very good job explaining the scriptures. The greatest Sunday school teacher in the history of the world, the one who inspired and made possible the writing of the scriptures, God with us, he gave a Sunday school lesson to a group of people and they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. It was not until he met with them at their table and shared and broke bread and spent this time with them that then they understood who he was. We don't want, we don't need people to encounter a Bible study. We want people and we need people to encounter the resurrected Jesus. That's the difference maker. You said, so you just told me the Bible study is not important? No, not at all. It's incredibly important. It is a step along the road. It's a way of seeing who Jesus is, but it is not the life changer. It is not the difference maker. It's the encounter with Jesus Christ as he's with us and provides everything we need that then our lives are transformed. Verse 32, or verse 31 sums it up. Their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Jesus gives hope in the midst of despair. He gives clarity in the midst of confusion. And then our last point that we'll take a little more, uh, with a little more speed. The last point is he provides community mission in the midst of retreat. Remember, these guys are leaving Jerusalem. They've given up on church, they've given up on Jesus, they've given up on any thought that this is gonna be their source of hope. Jesus comes to them, they encounter him, and then watch what happens next. Verse 33, they rose that hour and returned to Jerusalem. If you like to draw arrows in your Bible, draw an arrow that connects verse 13 to verse 33. 
Verse 13, they're running away from Jerusalem, headed to Emmaus. Verse 33, they've turned around and they're running back toward Jerusalem. They want to be connected with these disciples. They want to be on the same page. So they head back, um, and it says in verse 33, they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So Jesus is appearing to others at this place, appearing to Peter. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. When people encounter the resurrected Jesus, they want to be with other people who have encountered the resurrected Jesus. We have a lot of discussions in modern day American church life about how we can get people into church and how we can get people connected together. Those are important discussions. Those are discussions we're gonna continue to have. We need to have them. The clearest way that you get people together in the church is when they've encountered the resurrected Jesus and they can't help but get with other people who have also encountered the resurrected Jesus. We have to remember Christianity is a personal religion. We talk about a personal relationship. Sometimes we do a poor job doing that, but we talk about a personal relationship with God, kind of strange language. It's personal, but it's never private. It's always meant to be a shared experience. When you experience the work of Christ in your life, it brings us together automatically out of pure necessity. It brings us together into community, and then that community sets us on mission. We're not going to read them in detail, but verses 36 through 46, Jesus appears again to the disciples and reiterates who he is and what's he want, what he wants them to do. Then look down in verse 47. In verse 47, after he's explaining again to them who he is and what he's doing, how he's at work in their lives, verse 47 says, And my hope is that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So gathering together back in Jerusalem was not the end of the story. The next volume that Luke wrote, which is the book of Acts, if you're not familiar with your New Testament, never be embarrassed by that, but if you're not familiar with your New Testament, the first four books are what we call the Gospels that tell us about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they talk about his ministry. The fifth book is the book of Acts, and it's actually written by the same author who wrote the third book of the New Testament, so Luke and Acts. And Acts tells us what happens after they move from Jerusalem and they go out on this mission. Jesus brings people together as they encounter him and then it doesn't end there, he sets them on mission, that they are gonna live their lives so that others will know who he is and how he's at work among them. And the great thing is the way that we go out on mission, don't miss this, the way we go out on mission will model the way that Jesus lived out that mission. Here's what I mean by that. If I die and come back to life as the Redeemer, the Messiah of Israel, I go back to the temple and say, hey guys, look at me. Or forget the temple, I go to Rome and I rent out the Colosseum and say, hey everybody, look at me. You know what Jesus did in this, in this story? He walks along the road with two disciples and he spends time and he goes in and he sits down at their table and he breaks bread with them, explains the scriptures to them, spends time with them 
And it's at that time, in that moment, that they come to truly know who he is. Sometimes if we're not careful, we think about people being on mission or missionaries, and we think about big, huge gatherings. We talk about somebody being up on the stage and everybody listening to them speak. That's the exception that actually proves the norm. The norm is that you spend time with someone in your life, you develop an authentic friendship with them, you read the scripture together with them, you invite them to your house, you break bread with them, you spend time with them, and then they see who the resurrected Jesus is. That God desires to work in our way, in our lives, in such a way that other people will encounter this resurrected Jesus. What we find is that every great missions movement, every great missions movement in the history of the world has started with a true spiritual revival. Because our passion for God's kingdom is often pretty low because our passion for the king is pretty low. When our passion for the king is high, our passion for the kingdom becomes high. And you don't need me to remind this of you, but I wanna make sure that we're on the same page. Emmaus doesn't need a new strategy. I'm glad for new strategies. We're trying new strategies. Emmaus doesn't need a new building. I'm glad for this new building. It's a great gift. We want to use it as a good resource. Emmaus didn't need a new pastor, though I could not be more thankful to be the pastor of this church. What we need more than all of those things is a true, authentic encounter with the resurrected Jesus because that brings hope, that brings clarity, that brings community, that brings mission. And if we look to anything else other than that, to provide what we truly need, we're looking in the wrong place for the wrong reason. We are gathered together as a church because of who Jesus is and what he's done in the world and what he's done in our lives, and to him be the glory for that. Let's pray together as we get ready to sing a final song and wrap up our time. Here in just a minute, uh, David's gonna come up and lead us in, in a song if during this time, you need to use it as a time of reflection. Don't miss that we need every one of us to look at our lives and say, have I ever encountered the resurrected Jesus? And it's okay if that language sounds mystical or super spiritual or you're like, you know, I'm really not into that particular thing. But still think about this. Who is Jesus? What was he up to in his life? What was he up to in his ministry? Was it really true that he rose again? Was it really true that people encountered him and still encounter him? And if it's true that at some point in your life you know that you have seen clearly who Jesus is, my prayer is that the result of that would not be pride. It wouldn't be obligation. The result of that would be incredible humility that you say, Lord, I will give everything I am for your mission, for your community, for your church, for your world. God, bring us together to be a people who are able to do that. It doesn't have to be in this building. It doesn't have to be at this location. But God, connect us together so that we would be a humble people who are passionate about you, passionate about your kingdom, living completely abandoned to who Christ is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.